0: Hello and welcome to Planet to Critical, a podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics, activists, and they explain the complexities of the energy, economic and ecological crises that we face today. And they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. On this week's show is systems engineer and author Alice Friedemann. Alice joined me to discuss all things energy and how climate change is not the real problem. It is the energy crisis as far as she is concerned. She explains how peak oil can precipitate nation-state collapse She explains how renewables will never be able to meet the demands that are met by fossil fuels. She explains why governments are subsidising in all the wrong places. And she also has some pretty good news about how the IPCC models might be wrong, but in a positive way. For those who are worried about the future, Alice has some advice, what individuals and communities can do to prepare for how life is likely to change over the coming decades. And she says that there is much hope to be had for a post-carbon world. I'm so excited to, to speak to you. Thank you very much for making the time for me. Oh, no worries. With COVID, there's lots of free time these days. So I've been going through um, your website, uh, and unfortunately have not gotten a, uh, my hands on a copy of your book, Life After Fossil Fuels. But I was hoping we could go through specifically that fossil fuel versus renewables question. Um touching on nuclear as well because that's coming up a lot recently and then ultimately coming around to that little subtitle that you have on your site collapse or extinction and maybe seeing if there's secret option number three. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, li- life will continue I- actually i don't i don't
0: think extinction's likely you, well extinction for, for ma- humankind or the entire planet um I don't I
1: don't think either of those is likely. Some, something would survive and people are quite resourceful. Um, mm. We were on a trip into the Manu Biosphere Preserve in the Amazon Basin of Peru and um, the guide said that the uh, uncontacted people were probably watching us canoe down the river. So there's people in these really remote areas mm. that have learned how to live off the land for millennia.
0: Yeah, yeah. But I think what's so uh, frightening about coming face to face with the potential realities of uh, what society might look like in the coming decades, is recognizing that with all the decadence that we have in our current way of life, and all the technical knowledge, maybe technological knowledge, certainly uh, privileged knowledge, you know, if um, we were to run out of fossil fuels tomorrow, for example, me as an individual, I'd be screwed. I don't know what to do. It's true. I think most most of us would be in trouble. Um, except
1: people that were, um, or you know, farming the land, mm, organic mm, farmers yeah. uh, way out in the remote countryside. Mm. Um, so life after fossil fuels makes a big case. We should uh, be doing what we can to return to agriculture because without fossil fuels, that's how 80 to 90% of their people will um, need to, to make a living mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, for the lucky 10 to 20% in the towns, or maybe not so lucky if you read about, Um, What towns and cities
0: were Uh, (laughs) like—they weren't great either. That's
1: where diseases spread. But um... my uh,
0: my fear is that um, some form of like bio aristocracy will come back, and we'll essentially all be um, serfs of some sort, like being given land to work on it to provide for ourselves, which will facilitate um, a certain percentage of the population to continue living whatever kind of life they like.
1: That's my fear, too. I mean, look at, um, in America, um, Ralph Nader did a book on who owns the land, and it's something like, uh, aside from the federal government and state governments, 3% of private people own 85% of the remaining land. So it's highly concentrated, um, just like the 1% or the the wealth. It's um, uh, ridiculously
0: highly concentrated. Exactly. And people talk a lot about um, wealth. That's sort of become one of the main focuses for, I would say, you know, uh, activism Uh, and linking it to climate change is very, very good because, you know, the higher, the more money that you have and you're spending, obviously, the higher your energy as well, I put. But if we go beyond um, a couple of decades where the financial system is at risk of collapse, then it is these things about land. Like, that's where those concentrations are going to become extremely important. I just wonder if collapse is going to be so bad that, like, title deeds won't mean anything. Like, you own this land? Give. <laughs> we don't care. We're coming in.
1: <laughs> I, I, I think that's definitely a possibility. But um, human nature seems to sort itself into an upper 20%, bottom 80%. So yeah. in the, even in hunter-gatherer societies, apparently not everyone's um, equal. But but more equal, it'll, you know, I'm for hunter-gathering since women have um, quite a bit more um, power and control and status and equality. Agriculture is not so great for women.
0: But even kind of discussing hunter-gatherer societies, um, there were so many different formations, so many different societies. It wasn't just as simple as um, that was the way that it was all work for kind of pre-civilized humans or whatever, like I'm reading... Um, And I say this every week on the podcast, which is really embarrassing because it shows how slowly I'm reading it. (laughs) But right now I'm reading David Graeber and David Wengros' The Dawn of Everything. And they've gone through the archives to show what French missionaries were writing about the the Wendat people um, and other kind of indigenous tribes. And it's so interesting because it was the indigenous people that kind of, in their version, introduced the concepts of freedom and liberty and equality to the Westerners. Because in their
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean they're almost like little experimental labs, each little tribe, and mm. from at one point people splinter off, and then they can uh, form a new tribe. Lots of lots of experimentation are going on. Exactly.
0: exactly. So yes, we probably would make it through. But let let's talk about um what you where you see us going what you think is going to happen. I would love to know or to hear you say out loud kind of what you think of the renewable energy industry um, and whether or not all of this focus uh, essentially trying to stop us using fossil fuels overnight is kind of a huge distraction from what the underlying problem is, which is energy consumption. Yeah. um,
1: It's weird that climate change dominates the discussion and that somehow people thought solving climate change meant electricity, um, even though oil is what runs the world and always has, and it doesn't power the electric grid. In the 1970s crisis, that was the low-hanging fruit, and electricity was switched to um, coal, natural gas, and nuclear away from fossil fuels because they're so essential for transportation. And then you look at a crude barrel of oil. I mean, the obvious way to decide what is a problem is look at the very start of it so um if oil needs to be replaced then you look at a crude barrel of oil and oh there's 60 products you know there's the propane there's the fractions used only for plastics they can't be in a Mm -hmm. transport fuel Um, but then you get into gasoline kerosene for aircraft diesel for trucks uh ships and locomotives asphalt for roads Um, And then, well, what's the most important form of transportation? Um, In America, I would argue trucks, because we have 4 million miles of roads. Mm. um, And so 80% of communities are utterly dependent on trucks because they don't have a locomotive depot or a shipping port. So what do trucks burn? Diesel. The ones that matter. The ones that do actual work. Not a pickup truck, but the long haul trucks. Above all, tractors and harvesters. How are you going to have food? without Mm. diesel tractors and harvesters. Um, They can't run on batteries because they'd be so heavy, they'd compact the soil. And for decades, you, you would be unable to grow as much food. Not only that, the grid is thin. In rural areas, they were the last to get electricity, and they don't get much. And yet you'd need to charge all the tractors at planting season and all the harvesters at the same time at harvest season in a given area. And the grid... You know, couldn't support that. Um, and the electric grid itself can't stay up without natural gas to ba- not only balance it, but it provides baseload. load. It, it provides um, power when the wind and solar aren't up, period, um, with coal and nuclear sort of the, the bottom notes of the orchestra of power, power grid that are constant and steady for the power re- re- required around the clock. And they can't ramp up quickly or down quickly, or it destroys their, um, the lifetime is shortened. uh, Only natural gas can ramp up and down quickly to match wind and solar kicking in and out, in and out. Um, We don't have storage. There's not enough places to put uh, hydropower. As it is, only 10% of U.S. states have 80% of all hydropower uh, because we've got mountains and snow and things like that to keep the, the water flowing through the electric grid. And even then, it's only good for part of the year, typically mm. April, um, which is also when solar is at its peak. So those are the two renew- dispatchable renewables are competing with each other, um, and lowering the value of each of them too. But later on, you need to save it for drinking water, agriculture, mm-hmm. fisheries, ecosystems, and you can't just release the water whenever you want, even in the lucky states. So there's no, um, and that's the best possible backup power. But although hydropower is not considered renewable because dams silt up and they last from 35 to 200 years and then they stop working and then yeah, the but, starts to go because. But the-
0: wind farms stop working too.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's uh, None of it's renewable. Wind turbines <laughs> last 20 years. Yeah, And 15 years offshore because of all the corrosion from the seawater and the immense battering of storm waves and currents. And then um, solar power lasts 18 to 25 years. So they constantly need rebuilding. And they need rebuilding with fossil fuels. There Mm -hmm. is no electric way to make cement. Well, a wind turbine sits on, you know, Dozens of tons of cement platforms because these things are huge, Um, and the the wind the wind turbine blades are made of epoxy, which is oil. Um, The the steel is made with uh, coal. Yes, you can remelt existing steel, but that's only you know seventy percent of steel is made from scratch, and that's not to mention copper, iron, all the other metals that have to be smelted with the high heat of fossil fuels. They don't have an electric or hydrogen or ammonia or biofuel or on and on and on. There's no other way to make them. So you can't even make renewables. They're not renewable. They're rebuildable and only rebuildable while you still have fossil fuels. And the electric grid can only stay up while you have natural gas. Because also compressed air energy storage, there's only two of those in the whole world and they require a salt cavern 1,500 to 3,000 feet down to store the air in. Um, and batteries, there's not enough materials on Earth mm. to make even one battery that could store one day of U.S. electric grid, and um, electricity generated, and you'd need up to six weeks because energy's is seasonal. Um, even in California, the... Um, Solar power goes way down in the winter, and we certainly wouldn't be sharing it with other states. So, a national grid won't do you any good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's you. you should, so, if you can't have the so, but okay, um, I'm sorry I'm talking so long, but so I just ought to get interject some good news here, which is yeah. that um, peak oil looks like it happened in 2018, mm-hmm. and it makes all other resources possible, including coal and natural gas. So inevitably, climate change is going to begin to start to decline and and I and yeah, it's still going to be horrible for centuries. It's a done deal, but we're not headed for the um scary i p c c hothouse earth and and yet that's the only thing we're worried about, but the i p c c never modeled um how much likely fossil fuel reserves there were. geologists did they modeled what the likely outcomes would be with realistic amounts of fossil fuels. And they came up with uh, at least a dozen of them with ranges from um, 2.6 to 4.5 would maybe be where we end up.
0: Sorry, 2.6 to 4.5 what? The,
1: the representative control pathways. of the, our, the They keep changing the outcomes. And, I, and then 2022 will be yet another thing. But, um, the IPCC doesn't model coal decline or oil or especially oil decline. And so eight is where you get, six is where you start to get the hot house earth. Eight is where you get the, um, uh, extinction kind of talk that you have going on. Um, 2.6 is, it's not good. The, um, I think sea levels are locked in for sure, no matter what, um, but it's not going to um, raise the uh, what's it called the dew point the um, the point where um, certain parts of the globe are unlivable
0: because the um, heat is so high. Okay, so you're saying that the uh, IPCC report, the models that were done to, and I'm not going to use scientific language here at all, but to predict uh, to model essentially where we will be in the future because of climate change based on i'm assuming um what energy consumption has been in the past uh gdp growth all of this kind of stuff you're saying that they didn't actually factor in that we already hit peak oil and that it's a finite resource that we won't be able to depend on it they
1: assumed we would be burning fossil fuels exponentially until the year 2400 why even model past 2100 right they don't even bother to do that usually although you can find people who did, but they made that assumption that we had, they're pretty much like economists who assume there's no limit to growth. They did. They are. It's crazy. It's pure capitalism, the IPCC models.
0: That's insane though, because we, we did hit it in, in 2018.
1: Well, not many people know that, but if you look at chapter two of my book, life after fossil fuels, you'll see my citations for that, which are from the European, International Energy Agency, which is often cited in the news as an authority, and the United States Energy Information Administration, which is also the uh, agency of government that is supposed to um, let the rest of the government know where we stand with fossil fuels. They're both highly respected agencies uh, invented after the first oil crisis of 1973 so that we wouldn't be caught in that position again.
0: Okay. But then, why why weren't people, um, why weren't scientists screaming about it when the IPCC report was dropped? I I didn't see anything about the questioning the the models.
1: Well, there have been. Um, it, it's interesting. The first people who start who um, began warning about peak oil was M King Hubbard. Um, my grandfather taught him at the University of Chicago, and they um, were colleagues uh, in the National Academy of Sciences and good friends. And M. King Hubbard warned in 1954, based on discoveries of oil, you can predict production of oil. You can only produce oil that's been discovered. And so you get these two little intersecting bell curves back in 1954. And then um, Walter Youngquist, I can't remember if he headed Exxon's research and discovery, petroleum. He, He was very high level at Exxon. Colin Campbell, um, All these guys started warning back in the 1990s, uh, you know, these top oil guys, like, hey, you know, the reserves aren't infinite. Um, It made it into Scientific American. This stuff rarely made it into um, the papers of record. And I have a column at Energy Skeptic um, that's also at resilience.org. You know, why do politicians and economists deny peak oil and so on? Um, They can't get reelected. Um, they're afraid the stock market would crash. There's a lot of reasons why it hasn't been in the news. But geologists, ecologists, biophysical, uh, and natural economists, ecologists in general, there's fields of science that are aware of this, that publish on it, that have peer reviewed journals that are writing about this. Um, it's probably also not making its way into mass media because science writers are among the first journalists when there's an economic downturn Hmm. and the public's Hmm. not interested. And people the the hopeful stories you see, people are trying to um, get research money if they're in academia or they're trying to get um, investors' money if they're trying to do some kind of startup. Um, Even back in 2005, when I went to my first peak oil conference in Denver, where then-mayor, hickenlooper presided now he's um, a senator of colorado uh we we were talking amongst ourselves about uh renewable energy would be the last big scam on on um, wall street to make money right
0: (laughs) (laughs) yes yes um i was just thinking like why why would people not want to know um why would why would we not be discussing peak oil um Even the fact that you can see the oil industry trying to move into renewables and try to move into the um, carbon credit market as well. I mean, surely just from the moves that they're making, we know that they know at some some level that they're running out of their product. They're going to have to shift their business model. Um, But I was speaking to Nate Higgins and he was saying that, oh, I'm going to misquote him. (laughs) GDP and energy output are always correlated. So if we did admit that there was that peak oil has passed and that we are going to run out of our most abundant energy source and our cheapest energy source, then it is likely that the stock market would take a downturn because energy would be taking a downturn, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, people don't wanna know, I don't blame them. I, I, who, <laughs> who wants to be a farmer, right? It, it's better to think that you could just build, you know, solar panels and continue your lifestyle. Um, unabated. I mean, yeah, I'm not surprised anymore. Nobody wants
0: to know. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, it also would render so much of like, other work, my work, uh, a lot of academia as well. Everybody would have to be a farmer, from the (laughs) landowners.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and then you get into the more depressing um, areas of overshoot and um, carrying capacity. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the other frustration I have with climate change. It sucks all the oxygen out of the biodiversity crisis, the um, ozone crisis, the, all, all the other existential threats um, that are, are, are happening. And it's not because of climate change. It's happening because there's too many people destroying the planet. I mean, in, in order to get the metals needed for renewable energy, one third of the Earth's surface would need to be mined and, and especially in highly biodiverse areas. Like how green is that? That good, you know, at least with an oil well, it's this little, you know, mosquito prick in the, in the earth with a very small uh, surface uh, uh, platform that, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's mine. It's, it's so destructive. It's
0: every bit as destructive. It's funny. My, my, uh, understanding of fossil fuel has changed so much in starting this podcast and speaking to experts, funnily enough. <laughs> um, and now when I think of fossil fuel use in the future, um, it's like, well, at least we can't eat it. At least that's not us using an essential ingredient to life on this planet like water, just to power whatever it is that we think that we want to power. You know, when I see people go talking about biomass, as a renewable source of energy, cutting down forests um, to fuel our electricity grids or whatever, it's it's crazy, it's crazy. You wanna destroy habitats, you wanna destroy species, and you wanna destroy the one thing that's removing carbon um, from the planet because you think just because you can plant a tree again, it's a renewable source, it's madness.
1: Fossil fuels are important to us, not just oil, but natural gas, is how we make fertilizer through the Haber-Bosch process, which won the Nobel Prize in 1910 or so, uh, and it's it's a way to grab nitrogen out of the air, which is what we need for to grow plants, to grow our own bodies, for muscles, and you know it's, it's essential. And but nitrogen in the air is inert; doesn't want to come out of the air. Um, mm. So with natural gas, extremely high heat and pressure you can force the nitrogen out of the air and combine it with the hydrogen atoms in natural gas to make ammonia which is fertilizer which is how we feed 4 billion people at least of the 8 billion people so wow. so so now you need natural gas absolutely essential for the electric grid
0: absolutely essential to feed people and it's finite also like oil mm. what do you what do you think is likely then to happen do you think that um there will be, that we're not going to prepare adequately, that there will be a mass starvation event uh, in some parts of the world. I mean, already we're seeing um, in Central Africa right now, they're going through their third year of drought um, because of rising temperatures, et cetera, like the people just cannot feed themselves. Um, so do you think that that is likely to happen?
1: Well, as as energy declines we'll be we'll be less and less able to cope with natural disasters. I mean, you already have Yemen and Syria and all these failed states. Venezuela's on the way of um, coping with lack of energy. They all reached peak oil and you can see it causes an economic collapse. So you'll just see that more and more countries. Um and then there's something that's famous. Eleven of the twelve past recessions have been caused by high oil prices, and so then the the general public can't afford that. You get a recession. Oil goes down, the economy picks up. It's like a boom bust cycle. So you'll you'll certainly at some point see uh, a financial crisis uh, in in many countries in the world. Um, but people won't see it as an energy crisis. Most likely, they'll just see it as a financial crisis because we're trained to see the world through um, politics and um, economics. So even the collapses in the Middle East are seen as political, but a drought is also at the root of a lot of the um, problems in the world and in addition to energy. It's complicated, right? It's wow. not one single thing, but yeah, I, yeah it, it can't end well. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you're only focused on climate change and not on energy efficiency, and above all,
0: consuming less. Yeah. 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 It's so interesting. I've had um, Anastasia Makareva, a Russian physicist on the, the show, and she was saying, who is directing all of this um, anger and focus on fossil fuels? It is the one thing that we need. It is the one thing that we're going to have to find a way we're going to need time to transition we're always going to need them for some reason um she said it's very strange to me why all of the attention is focused on the one thing that we actually do need rather than making the changes that we could tomorrow that would be ve- very helpful to the world uh, for her it's forests we need to protect the forests um and i found that extremely interesting that the way that we frame the narrative about for example just carbon or or just temperatures rising, um, it completely narrows the the focus to the point you can't actually come up with any solution.
1: Well, for in Life After Fossil Fuels, I, at least half the book is on biomass because ultimately that will replace fossil fuels just as it did before fossil fuels. It was the main thermal ener- energy source for cooking and heating, um, for uh, smelting metals, for all making bricks, ceramics, all the other uses. So clearly, uh, planning for should be high priority. But they don't scale up like coal and oil. You, 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 it, they can support a much smaller population. And um, even in the past, civilizations collapsed because they used up their wood, and they could no longer build ships to wage war to get more wood or to trade for wood. Um, so you'll still have boom bust cycles, but uh, with the rise and fall of forests. But we should still be doing that clearly yeah. um, to prepare for the future. It'll be infrastructure. It'll be every it will be the steel, the cement
0: now. It will be what everything's built out of absolutely what what kind of preparations would you like um nation states to be making or advising their their corporations or citizens to be making at this juncture?
1: Well, I have a section at energy skeptic, um, called what to do. And, um, so that has various, uh, skills you might want to acquire. Um, above all you would want to live in a region that's not over carrying capacity where there's still water that's likely to fare well during climate change. Um, that uh has forests. Uh and there's a book written by Holland Day that I review in they're America's Most Sustainable Regions. I can't remember the title of the um post, but it's in the Where to Be section of What to Do. Uh that that would be the number one thing people could do. Start a garden. It um it's wonderful to have fresh organic food. Um mm-hmm. Right from your backyard or pots on your porch, what whatever gets you going with it. Um, There's if you don't, you know, if you're in a condo, you there's usually community gardens that you can get a plot at. um, Mm -hmm. To start living simpler, um, learn how to play an instrument. There's all learn to read books again instead of Mm -hmm. getting hooked into the internet and your phone. There's all kinds of ways to to prepare. Um, for what what in many ways will be a better future. We are so isolated here. That's part of what's driving the um, opioid and meth and and, um, fentanyl epidemics um, because people have lost connection with each other. Some huge percentage of Americans live alone. um, And as energy declines, your social circles um, and friendships will matter more. There's some good things about it ahead. It's not all gloom and doom.
0: Yeah, there's um, there's certainly a a vision for like a post carbon world um, in which social equalities uh, even out a little bit better. Community becomes a central point of people's lives. You know, there is a dream to be found. There's a, certainly a symbol to be sold uh, for those who are want to push people, you know, in a better better direction. Uh, of course, it's not going to be the people um certainly when i think of in the uk that's not going to be the country that's hit the worst um already like we said in parts of africa in uh southeast asia you know the flooding like the, the these poor deprived um deliberately oppressed deliberately undereducated communities are being devastated already by climate change and so to me the worry is what what are our choices going to do to them you know before our choices catch up with us. Well, I don't know how much time there is left
1: of normalcy. I mean, the the decline is not it's not a bell curve, it's more like a cliff. A oh, curve, really? We extracted oil with enhanced recovery techniques that sucked out oil that normally would have been available after the peak for people in the future. And we got all the easy stuff. Like, there's oil in the Arctic. We don't know how to get it. The uh, permafrost would tip over anything you built on it in the roads. The uh, icebergs will mow down any um, oil rigs offshore. So um, there's very, very deep-sea oil. But the energy to do that, you subtract a huge amount of energy from what can be delivered to society. That's why the energy return on invested matters. Um, that Charles Hall and other people were promoting uh, are still promoting. Um, you know, with the the energy return on invested is still mainly reasonable in the Middle East, which is a you know a great place to have something like eighty percent of the remaining uh, reasonably obtained oil left. It's it's a hotbed of potential wars and uh, climate change, drought and. Uh, other catastrophes. So, you know, I'd say nuclear war is one of the big fears for the future that we don't fight each other um, over the remaining oil. Richard Heinberg and Colin Campbell wrote a book, The Remini Protocol, about how all nations should agree that they would reduce their use of oil at the same rate as decline to stay under that. That also means reducing population not reducing it but encouraging birth control Mm. and uh, making the abortion legal Mm. and taxing the heck out of anyone who has more than one child
0: there's Mm.
1: things you could do uh, that won't be done obviously you're not even allowed to talk about it so (laughs) yeah true (laughs) um
0: why why not nuclear because i mean france does it and they stay at 3.1 tons of carbon per person per year, which is sort of within the UN guidelines as to how to have a sustainable future. Um, There's been no major accident there. It seems to be affordable. I mean, why can't we power our countries with nuclear?
1: Well, first of all, just like peak oil, there is peak uranium. And there's a great book by by Hugo Bardi called Extracted about mining and uranium. Could we get it from seawater? All all those things that are touted as, you know, making it doable. Secondly, both of my books, um, When Trucks Stop Running, Energy in the Future of Transportation and Life After Fossil Fuels, A Reality Check on Alternative Energy, if you can't run transportation on electricity, which I go to great lengths to show, if you can't run industry, on electricity or anything else, which I go to great lengths to show. I'm also including hydrogen and all the other things. Generating electricity doesn't do you any good. What's the point? Hmm. And we don't have any way to store nuclear waste still. I'm, I'm sorry I'm so U.S. centric, but, you know, over here, the one place we had built and spent $15 billion researching, um, thousands of potential combinations of volcanoes suddenly coming up, of massive floods in the desert, of all the ways uh, things could go wrong. uh, They modeled all of that, and Yucca Mountain simply isn't a problem.
0: Yucca Um, Mountain? They shut it
1: down. Um, And so you have right now, wherever there's a nuclear power plant, um, future generations won't have the energy to get rid of it. I think that's our number one thing now, Ah. is to um, get rid of nuclear waste and bury them for just the least we could do for future generations, clean up our worst mess, that, that, that those um, byproducts of nuclear can last for um, a million years, hundreds of thousands of years. Why would, why would we do that to future
0: generations? It's so mean. That <laughs> is a hell of a bombshell. Of course it requires energy to get rid of nuclear waste.
1: And what we learned from Fukushima is that it's the spent nuclear fuel pools, which are not under a containment vessel, but where they pull the rods out to cool them down, to store them somewhere that doesn't exist someday, that if the water drained from that, um, which backup generators only provide one week of power to pump water in, that uh, a study was done um, at MIT and uh, another university that showed 8 million people would have to be evacuated if that happened at the Peach Bottom nuclear facility, in I think it's in Pennsylvania, because of the toxic uh, waste that would get spread. I mean, you know, so every every um, nuclear power plant is a ticking time bomb. As it is, we're going to have power outages as the grid gets uh, less reliable in the future, and you know, we we don't have um, a solution for the uh, spent. Fuel pools. It's hard to say that quickly. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: it's been fuel pools. <laughs> right. Okay. I yeah hadn't uh, hadn't thought about it from from that end. The the maintenance of nuclear, and as the grid gets more unreliable, yeah, how dangerous that would be. What about fusion then? Nuclear fusion. Yeah. Well,
1: um, <laughs> my my husband was a science writer at Learn- Lawrence Berkeley Lab, and we actually befriended. Um, physicists and astrophysicists, and they they never got tired of saying it's thirty years away and always will be. Right. Um, it's just, uh, and again, electricity not not not. What does it? What does that do? If uh, trucks need to run on diesel fuel, it doesn't um, help. And see this again. It gets to um, overshoot. Um, the United Nations estimates because we've been um, treating our Topsoils so badly, on average, we only have 60 years of crops left. So, oh, urane, you know, fusion and uh, electrical contraptions don't um, restore the soil to its full health. That that mm-hmm. requires organic agriculture. Mm-hmm. It's yet another reason why we need to return to doing that. We're running out of pesticides. Mm-hmm. Uh, they only last five years on average. Uh, they're causing an insect Apocalypse, which echoes all the way up the food chain. Um, and you can grow as much food with organic as industrial. Um, a meta-study of over 5,000 uh, studies comparing organic to industrial, found something like almost 90% organic produced more food. It can be done. Um, so we need to do that for the planet. Mm-hmm. There, there's so many issues that are going to get us, e- it's a it fusion, nothing really solves anything, not even even if um, the earth tank turned out to be a giant gas tank that God periodically filled up.
0: <laughs> we just can't continue the way that we are, right, yeah, ultimately. What you said about Syria, Yemen, Venezuela, having hit peak oil, and that being the state of collapse that they now find themselves in, when, when did they, did they hit peak oil before 2018? Oh yeah, long before that, I,
1: I have a post on that, and there's a book by Nafis Ahmed. I want to call it "The Biophysical Causes of
0: Falling uh, States, Collapsing Systems."
1: Yeah, and so part part of peak oil production, they were never able to grow their own food. They were never, you know, their populations. Same with Saudi Arabia, all the Middle Eastern countries. Um, their populations exploded um, tenfold or more above. What they could feed, you know, before um oil came along, but far beyond what uh, they could sustain, but they with oil money, they could buy food, they could buy mm-hmm. water, they could buy the things that they couldn't do for themselves. but with peak oil, um, they they no longer could afford to um, to do that. They didn't have the money to import food and other goods that they needed. So it's sort of an indirect I mean then the the drought has. Just, you know, been an extra hammer. Many countries are past peak oil. Most countries are past peak oil. I I don't remember how many, 150 that ever produced oil, maybe 140 of them are past peak oil.
0: Oh, so when we say we're past peak oil, is that U.S.? That's the world, because it was mainly
1: um, the United States that was Saudi Arabia for a long time that produced most of the oil that won World War II. Um, and uh, and Russia and um, the Middle East have always been the major producers and still are and then all the other areas that had it are in decline they may still be producing, Mexico is still producing but um, they're well past
0: uh, their peak and do we have a number of years or decades for how long after uh, peak we go off that cliff you're talking about? Peter Turchin studies the rise and fall of civilizations
1: and across civilizations throughout history usually takes 20 years. It's fast. People who think we are centuries. um, But, but the thing with um, his theories are, are, he doesn't look at how we're a one time only dependent on fossil fuel civilization. It will never happen again. Never happened before. So the it could be faster, I think. Personally, I think it'll be faster than that. But how long do you think it'll take? Well, I mean, it depends what you mean by that, too, because it's going to be very uneven.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Some some places will do better than others. We're already seeing that.
0: Which place is doing quite well in all of this? I can't think of one off the top of my head. That might just be a gloom and doom perspective, though.
1: Well, technically Saudi Arabia, but it would. They're not. They can't defend themselves if someone, China or whoever goes, or Russia go after their oil. So uh, the US, as long, okay, the only reason the US is doing as well as it is, we never even came close to energy independence, but fracking is the only reason that life carried on after 2005 to present in the United States, which buoyed the world. That's the only reason. I mean, oil production pretty much flatlined in 2005-ish. We've been on a plateau since 2008. Fract oil was the only oil that nicked it a little bit above the flatline. Mm-hmm. But now fracked oil has peaked. So now everything is in decline at 8% oh, yes. a year. I mean, imagine your salary being cut that much. Now, to some extent, that is offset by pumping CO2 into oil wells to push the oil up to the surface or water, like it's, mm-hmm. it's offset a little, but that that won't last because those oil wells are are declining and new oil isn't replacing it. We've found less oil the past seven years than since like 1935 or
0: something. We're not finding new oil to replace mm. what's declining. Mm. And it's also true, isn't it, that the oil that we are finding is like the tar sand oil. So yeah. it's, it's not nearly as good as the Well,
1: and fracked oil is, uh, to a huge extent, mainly good for plastics. That's Mm -hmm. another reason you're seeing the plastic explosion. And billions and billions of dollars worth of companies opened up in America to take advantage of the fracked oil to make plastic goods with. Mm. Well, I mean, and there's another use of oil. It's used to make half a million products, medicine, paint,
0: carpets, clothing. We
1: don't have a replacement for that. Bioplastics are very limited and very expensive.
0: And also take up space in the natural world that should be given to A, natural, you know, systems, biological ecosystems, and then B, eventually agriculture again. (laughs) (laughs) Right. There was um one thing that I wanted to and although I wonder I suppose you've covered it. Um I read your article on direct air capture. So, for anyone listening, that's um technologies to supposedly suck carbon dioxide out of the air. Um, and you and your colleagues did a whole huge peer-reviewed thing of like two hundred different scientific articles and articles about policies to establish whether or not publicly subsidizing these technologies are worth is, is worthwhile. Um, and you said, quote, Scientific literature does not support the use of public funds to subsidize the commercial development and deployment of industrial carbon removal. Government decisions on carbon removal are largely driven by the question of commercial viability. Public policy decisions are being finance-driven, not science-driven. I suppose my question then after speaking with you uh, for this time would be, Are there any government decisions that could be science-based at this point now that would actually be worthwhile? Or have we passed the point of real mitigation?
1: Well, I mean, the carbon capture emits more CO2 than it can suck up because it takes so much energy. The whole thing is just ridiculous. Uh, Yeah, the government has, has to play a role. That's what bothers me, that they're not paying attention Um, There should be, um, you know, they could, the community colleges, college curriculums could uh, focus more on um, getting rid of pesticides, integrated pest management, organic agriculture. Um, Local governments could have more community gardens. Um, The state level could do more um, insulation of homes so that they use less energy. Um, And the heat pumps, they need to, you know, subsidize that. There's um, your local community, what what needs to be done will vary. Like here, our sewage system's falling apart. It's 100 years old. Um, You know, get important infrastructure. We live twice as long as we do, not because of medicine, but because of clean water and air from water treatment plants and sewage treatment plants, and they're falling apart. There's all kinds of infrastructure that could be beefed up. Um, it's a it, mass transit, uh, uh, discouraging private car use. Um, like we live near a lake that's that's filling in if it needs to be dredged. And then it could provide clean water if there's an earthquake or another fire. I, there's there's a, a, so much government has to do you that that, that you can't do it on your own. And so for the governments not to recognize this uh, is a tragedy, it's going to be a worse tragedy than it needed to be. I, th-
0: I find that to be a very interesting message because um, there's a lot of emphasis on things that we need to stop doing or not do or we, that we won't be able to do. But also there are investments that need to be made and in, in lifestyle decisions that need to be taken about the things that we can do. And seeing it as an opportunity as well as you said to maybe have a better life um but to also it's not just okay the energy crisis is huge but it isn't just energy as well it is also about the fact that how are people going to get access to clean water how they're going to get access to food uh the health industry i mean that's the thing when people talk about plastics i'm like how go on do modern medicine without plastic yeah
1: (laughs) Yeah, good it's luck so essential that.
0: yeah it's so essential it's such an amazing if it's not abused it is such an amazing material and there's all of these things that we need to be investing in as well to kind of you know but, but I suppose the problem is that that would demand confronting the issue head-on which is we have a very big problem well you can't we
1: get re-elected if you did but mm. you know the other thing the government could do Right now, there's these massive grain elevators that store almost all the grain for America in the Midwest. So if things come to a halt, um, how do you get that grain out to the coasts? Um, 80% of Americans live within 200 miles of the coasts. So California, every state could be building smaller grain elevators and help to distribute food in an emergency. And I once talked to, after our house burned down, I was interested in emergency planning. Um, especially for wildfires but I talked to someone at the state of California and they said that's too political, you'll have different groups saying that the, one group got more food than another and we don't want to deal with it and um, food food waste but, but there's all kinds of, it, the reason we have civilization is that um, wheat and other grains lasted seven years or more and the good rulers would store up, the, yeah they taxed the peasants to death but when there was a famine when there was bad weather several years in a row then if they were good rulers rulers they distributed the food back to the people and right. so they were and so you could see government well government should should do that uh today although that is so um
0: non-capitalistic i suppose yeah exactly <laughs> i was just going to say you can't do that in a free market quote unquote um yeah. and you also can you do that under the guise of civil civil liberty and individual freedom, which our societies like? That's what we're fed. That's what keeps us on the on the rat race. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you take that away, then what else are we doing? <laughs> now, there's literally
1: hundreds of things that we could be doing with our mm-hmm. remaining energy to um, make life
0: easier for future generations, but we're not doing it. All right. Okay. Well, Alice, I think I've taken up enough of your time. That was utterly fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking to me and having such uh, depth and breadth of knowledge about this. Oh, well, thanks for saying that. I <laughs>
1: I'm I hope I didn't depress your listeners too much, but there, there is hope. There are things that could be done. Um, get yourself somewhere in a more ecologically sound area above Mm. all. Okay. Tell me, who would you like to platform? Well, someone that you might be interested in interviewing is Jason Bradford. He's on the um, board of postcarbon.org. He um, has been converting industrial farms to organic farms for 10 years and then um, finally um, bought his own farm. Uh, He's... uh, a leader in the peak oil movement um, and peak everything movement, limits to growth. Uh, really smart, really funny.
0: Check out his podcast, Crazy Town. I absolutely will. Thank you so much for your time. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. It was fun to talk with you. Take care. I'm glad. Take care. Bye-bye. For more information on Alice's work and her book, Life After Fossil Fuels, I've put the links to her website, Energy Skeptic, and her books over at planetcritical.com, where you can choose a paid subscription to support this podcast. Thank you all for listening and for your support. See you next week.